Well, welcome again to City Life. I don't know if y'all caught that. I know Tammy did. She just must have just stepped out. We made eye contact when, when Kenny said that the, the young adults crowd is slim here. That hit deep. <laughs> that got me. I was like, I guess, yeah, I'm no longer there. And it's true because when your first thought is I got to put my kid to bed or the thought of staying up to, into the AM like doesn't appeal to you, you know you're no longer in the CYP crowd. You People usually ask, well, how do I know? You know. You know when you know you, that you know. But uh, tonight we close out our Lyft series. This is the series that we started 2020 with. Uh, after our sharing service, we got this rolling. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, if you've got the Version app, you're going to swipe there. We're going to be in Isaiah 40, and I'm going to be meeting you there in just a second. If you don't even have a Bible, there's some under your pew. You're in luck. Um, but this series was sparked um, by a passage I read in this book called Run With the Horses by Eugene Peterson. It's about the prophet Jeremiah's life and Eugene Peterson is talking about uh, spending time at his home up in Montana, which was off a lake, and he would just chill and bird watch. Retirement sounds great. <laughs> you know, like, I like the sound of that. And he was watching these sparrows on a branch about four feet over the water. And they were just watching their parents, uh, mommy and daddy sparrow, go out and get them food and bring it back for them. But finally, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson says that the parents had had enough. He says, this went on for a couple hours until the parents decided they had had enough of it. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing, pushing, pushing. The end one fell off, and somewhere between the branch and the water four feet below, the wings started working, and the fledging was off on his own. Then the second one. The third was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again, bulldog tenacious. But the parent was without sentiment. He pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the, more, the poor chick to hang on than risk the insecurities of flying. The grip was released and the inexperienced wings began pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. So we've pulled from this passage because I think we all want to live our hashtag best life, right? We want to be living our best life. We want to live gracefully and beautifully. And when we step into a new year, like we just stepped and marched through January, it's a season of vision, of, of plans about how we want to progress as people, as fathers, as husbands. Each of us are in unique situations where we're like, God, how do you want to grow me? What's the next step? And this is a good thing, right? Sometimes we mock resolutions, but change often doesn't happen by chance. It comes with intentionality. But as we've discussed, there are so often areas in life where God's trying to pull us or like those birds, push, push, push us into growth, into the next stage of maturity, into flying rather than standing or sitting or clinging to branches. We've talked about how he calls us to giving, but so often we cling to our resources and our security in those resources. He might call us to fasting, but we cling to our contentment. He might call us to uh, reaching, as we talked about last week, evangelism, but we so often we cling to our comfort. And none of the latter items in that list is a bad thing, right? But when we cling to them as God calls us forward, they can become what Eugene Peterson calls untried wings. As we cling to branches and never step into growth that is stunted, potential that's untapped, purpose that's not fully realized. 
But when you look at the idea of wings in Scripture, I'm not sure there's a verse that's more printed, uh, put on mugs, websites, mouse pads, if we still use those, than uh, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 11 through 13, where it says, God gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired. Can I get an amen? Dustin, you don't count. (laughs) And young men will fall into exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Such a beautiful passage. It's poetic. It's it's powerful. And it's it's beautiful. And the word trust here, which in the Hebrew is kaval. I looked it up. It's Q-A-V-A-H. Means to wait. Means to wait. To hope, to expect, to pause. David uses the word repeatedly in the Psalms when he talks about waiting on the Lord as he does again and again. So the implication in Isaiah is kind of counterintuitive. He's saying, look, wait and you'll soar. Rest and you'll fly. Propel yourself by learning how to press pause. But here's the thing. I don't know about you. I don't like waiting. Our culture doesn't like waiting. Our culture doesn't like pausing. Uh, we find our ways to work around lines with technology. I can go to Starbucks now. I don't even just stand in line. I can put my order in early, show up, just take it and walk out. Like, I don't have to stand in line if I don't want to. And I spend a lot of time in Starbucks. I can tell you, my inclination and the inclination of people, the moment you step into a line and you got to wait, we don't know what to do. So we just pull our phone out and start doing something, right? Because the idea of pausing or stopping what we're doing, like, that's wasting precious time. Waiting for us is sometimes as counterintuitive as it is for those young birds to let go of that branch and use the wings that they haven't flown with yet. And even though I think all of us would say we want more rest in our lives, am I right? You can amen that one, Dustin, right? We want more rest. Sometimes it's so elusive, right? So often the reason, though, that we forsake pressing pause or resting or waiting on God, even though it's right there in Scripture, right, even in the Ten Commandments, because we can cling to the branch of our own efforts, of striving. Why would we do that? Well, for some of us, it may be that we cling to the facade of control. It's hard to let go of control and trust in God. For some of us, it may be that we're striving to feel value. We find value in what we can do. And so whatever the motive is, so often again and again, we end up living with the untried wings of rest. And as a result, We become a restless people, like restless, literally, people without rest. And it's a problem, and I I can't really overstate it. Like, listen to these stats. A recent study of 7,500 full-time employees found that 23% of employees reported feeling burned out at work very often or always, while an additional 44 reported feeling burned out sometimes. Some of y'all can probably relate. And this is why 225 million workdays are lost every year in the U.S. related to stress and just burnout. And burnout accounts for an an estimated, up to an estimated, 190 billion in healthcare spending each year because it's attributed to everything from diabetes to heart disease, gastrointestinal issues, high cholesterol, even death under the age of 45. So when I'm saying, like, restlessness is a problem, I'm not just exaggerating so that I can make a point tonight. We see it in our culture. We're a people that needs rest. And maybe you would say, well, it's probably rooted in our technology. Like, we have light bulbs now. We can stay up all night. We have, I could be in a dark room and just look at a monitor, and and I no longer have to, to quit at the end of a long day when the sun sets. Like, I think it's 1910, the average American got nine hours of sleep. 
some of us would kill for that, right? <laughs> We're probably in, in, in the, the shoes of it's the disease control and prevent, prevention. They recently did a survey that found that one out of three of us don't get seven hours of sleep, which is like the healthy ideal. And why would disease control do that survey? Well, because, again, a lack of physical rest can do damage to our bodies. But it's not due to recent technology. I've actually used this quote before, but it's from Blaise Pascal, a 17th century mathematician, inventor, theologian, basically Renaissance man. And he was observing the 17th century culture when he said, you take away their diversion and you will see them dried up in weariness. It's to be ushered into unhappiness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no diversion. He said elsewhere, I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact. They can't stay quietly in their own chamber. Restlessness is not a recent issue. And as we'll look at tonight, it goes back to our earliest history. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Restlessness, as we'll look at, it's rooted in the very fall of man. And I know I've quoted a bunch of health stuff just now to make a point, but finding a solution and being able to find rest is more than about our health. It's about our holiness. It's about being a holy people that is made whole and holy, and rest is a part of that. But we can make all kinds of excuses not to rest. Reasons that we cling to the branch, whether it's for control, identity, whatever it is. Like, I don't know if you've heard this before. I've heard this from well-intended people. I've even heard from pastors that would say, well, the devil doesn't take a day off. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? Well, the devil doesn't take days off. My first thought when people say that is, why is the devil your role model? Right? Like, (laughs) Paul didn't say, follow me as I follow the devil. He said, follow me as I follow Christ, who models for us rest. Like he breaks away from the crowd to go spend time with Jesus in prayer. He was a nap connoisseur. This man could nap on a boat in the middle of a storm. I appreciate that. Right? And God the Father in Genesis, almighty and infinite power, models for us rest. Not because he needed it, but on the seventh day he rests and he sets it apart as holy. The first holy thing in the history of creation, not an object, not, uh, not anything, but a space in time, the seventh day, rest that was declared holy. It says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Well, the devil doesn't take days off. That's probably why it's so unholy, right? He's not our goal. He's not the model we aspire to. I read Psalm 1913 just this week. It was just a part of my daily readings. And in Psalm 1913 in the New King James, it says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I love the message version where it says, keep me from stupid sins, from thinking that I can take over your work. And you could argue that the devil's first sin was one of presumption, right, of taking over. And the temptation the devil presents to Adam and Eve was based on this similar presumption, be like God. So it shouldn't surprise us when we find this impulse within us, even when it's hidden behind work ethic or a busy schedule or the grind. You could argue that most of our clinging to restless busyness is because we don't trust in the work of God. It's a sin of presumption, a lack of trust in God's work, so we just keep working and working, thinking if we ever stop, if we ever pause, if we ever rest, it's all going to fall apart. But we can see the roots of our restlessness even more evident in Adam and Eve's son, Cain. Because after Cain famously murders Abel, God confronts him and tells him as punishment that he will be a restless wanderer. 
So Cain laments and echoes these weighty words in Genesis 4.14, where he says, I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So it says that he went east of Eden, and he settled in a land which he named Nod, which literally means wandering. So the very name of the city he settles in speaks to his unsettled spiritual condition, restless wandering. And wandering in and of itself It's not a bad thing. I want to travel more. Like, let me see some more of the world. I would love to wander and leave home to go out. But that's why we, when we talk about movies like Seven Years in Tibet or Secret Life of Walter Mitty, they'll talk about wanderlust, right? Like, like wandering in and of itself, romantic wandering can be a beautiful thing. But romantic wandering has a home to go back to. It's even present, you think about the Odyssey, you think about uh, Moby Dick and these classic tales, there was a home to go back to and that's what made it romantic wandering. Whereas restless wandering, it's a homeless wandering. Restless is also translated as homeless in some translations of Genesis 4. That's why even the city that Cain settled in, where he built a home, would be named wandering. He was settled but unsettled, at rest physically but restless spiritually. And in the following verses, we see his descendants built the first civilization, agriculture, tools, music. All these things begin to be built, and restlessness is at the roots of his family. Restlessness is at the heart of the first culture, and it's still at the heart of ours. In America, we live much the same way. Because in America, we've settled in with our house and white picket fence and cars in the garage. It's a good school district for the kids. And yet our culture is restless in the truest sense of the word, as those stats show We don't do rest, and when we make attempts, we often do it wrong, as we'll talk about later. But it bears repeating and underlining and highlighting that a culture that binges on busyness is ultimately going to produce burnout. And the church isn't immune. Church leaders, 20% of of churches that retire, it's attributed to burnout. You know, if there was a Mount Rushmore of preachers and pastors, Charles Spurgeon would have to be on it. And if you had, like, cards to collect— like sports cars for basketball and football players. If you could do those for pastors, it'd be pretty cool. But his stats on the back would be prolific. These would be his statistics, that in 57 years, Charles Spurgeon accomplished three lifetimes of work. Every week he preached four to ten times, read six meaty books, revised sermons for publication, lectured, edited a monthly magazine, and in his spare time, this doesn't count as spare time in my book, he wrote about 150 books. He shepherded the largest Protestant megachurch in the world, directed a theological college, ran an orphanage, and oversaw 66 Christian charities. That's ridiculous. He's in the Hall of Fame, right? But what most don't talk about with Spurgeon is that he spent the last third of his life out of the pulpit, recovering from depression, anxiety, and physical ailments. And he himself, in his journals and his writings, you can find in books, connected this sickness and depression to overwork and just grinding too hard. But that doesn't make it into the biographies. That doesn't make it onto the website where I found these stats. That's not what we hold up and celebrate. Our culture celebrates the grind. We hold up the accomplishments, but so often we fail to mention the cost. Right, it might not be Charles Spurgeon's cost. It might be like it's wrecking your home. Right, but Mark Batterson once said this, you can do the work of God at a pace that destroys the work of God in you. If we don't wait on God, eventually the weight we're carrying will break us. That's why the invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty is so stinking beautiful, where he says, come to me, 
All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Because we all feel this universal restlessness at some point. It may not be a story of burnout and trauma, but there's a universal angst we feel due to like a restless wandering spiritually. And again, it might not be burnout, but there's this place we arrive at. It's the end of what you can accomplish. You just realize, I've got limits. My life is limited. I don't have all the time in the world. I don't have all the, the energy in the world. If you don't know that yet, wait till you have kids. Again, it might not look like a, a burnout story. It might spark a midlife crisis. could cripple a marriage. But you know, in healthy ways, it can cause us to pivot, delegate more work, spend more time at home, ultimately loosen our grip when you realize I've got limits, I've got to lean into God. Rest is this divine reminder of our limits. It's a gift. And it's a reminder of the greater gift. That as it says in the gospels, as it says in the epistles, excuse me, we're saved by grace, not by our efforts. To cling to control, to cling to our efforts and our striving is ultimately to cling to an idol, a dead branch. Some of us, I think we understand this. Like you grasp most of what's been said, but it's like we still can't get the rest that we need. When we more deeply understand, though, what is at the root of restlessness and burnout, it can teach us better how to rest. You know, I'm reading a, a great book. At least it's great so far. My bookmark's at chapter 6. It's called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. And it talks about, in the first chapter, burnout. Because, again, leaders are burning out left and right. But he says, you survey these people that are burning out, and you look at the reasons for their burnout, and most often, burnout is not rooted in workload. It's rooted in anxiety and relational isolation. So what does that mean? It means that rest isn't just eliminating work and reducing a workload. But I think for many of us, that's been our definition of rest, right? Not working, doing nothing, drifting, you know, vegging out. But you can't just reduce workload and reduce burnout. You need to also increase relationship. I find it interesting that when Cain Crane, <laughs> talks about his restless wandering, he ties it to his disconnect from God's presence and his relationship with God. You know, rest is about self-care, but it's not all about self-care or self-reliance and managing anxiety and managing our rest. It's about proper relationship, managing our relationship with God. Abraham Heschel, he wrote a great book on the Sabbath. It's very short. It's basically a long essay. But he says of the word rest in Scripture, manuha, which we usually render with rest, means much more than withdrawal from labor and exertion, more than freedom from toil, strain, or activity of any kind. Manuha is not a negative concept, but something real and intrinsically positive. So rest isn't just unplugging. It's plugging in. It's positively plugging into God. Communion, not just what we celebrated here, but communion, relationship with God, spending time in his presence, waiting on God like it talks about in Isaiah 40. That's what renews us and gives us wings. That's what's recharging. So ultimately, you can do rest wrong. Just like I could handle this phone wrong. If I'd never seen a phone before and I'm looking at this and it tells me it's at 2%, I could be like, oh, okay, turn it off. It's not going to die, but it's also not going to charge. I just take the phone at 2%. And I'm like, well, I better turn it off. When I turn it back on, it's still going to be at 2%. You got to plug it in. But that's how many of us treat rest, that I'll unplug, I'll do nothing, I'll veg out. And that's a facet of rest, sure, but it's an incomplete picture. Rest isn't just an absence of, from all things and unplugging from all things. It's plugging into God. 
And this phone doesn't just serve as an analogy for rest. It can also be the biggest complication to rest, right? Like we used to go to work. Now work comes to us. I got my email. I got inboxes, messages, phone calls coming in on this thing. The same device I'm using on a Monday to look up like showtimes to go on a date with my wife is the same one I'm getting requests in real time. <laughs> the same device I'm on, I'm on version, right? Looking what I should be reading that day. I'm getting emails and messages on the same device. If we're not intentional about rest, about plugging into God's presence, we'll be sucked right back into work, right? If we don't fill our rest with something, distraction will gladly slide right on in. As Heschel said, it's not just a negative concept. Rest is something intrinsically positive. And he said elsewhere in this book that labor without dignity is the cause of misery. And rest without spirit is the source of depravity. Again, he said, labor without dignity is the cause of misery, and rest without spirit is the source of depravity. This is why therapists and counselors will tell you, and they'll tell me, that it's those moments after your biggest win. Like, it's that moment after those those 24 hours after your best sermon, best church service, where you should be most mindful. Right, when you're you're about to rest and your body is just, lets its guard down. Right, that, that can be the time the enemy most wants to strike. Like, look at David's rest. King David, Old Testament, decides to stay home from battle, right? And that was the birthplace of adultery, murder, lying, all these breaking of the Ten Commandments. Right, you can do rest wrong. It's how our country puts more money than any other country in the world into the leisure industry. Billions of dollars. And yet we're also the one burning out the most and the most restless. Because you can do rest wrong. It's not just putting down. It's picking up, not just unplugging, it's plugging in. Otherwise, we'll never truly experience the renewal we need on a soul level to really address that restless wandering. You know, this is such a word at the heart of City Life that if you've been here since the plant, you probably heard like four sermons on resting, one per year, each from a different angle, because it's so unaddressed in our culture. You know, on a personal level, I don't, I don't tell people I have a life verse, but if I did, this one would probably be it. Uh, Just because in ministry it means so much to me. When I'm encouraging people in ministry, it it means a lot. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where Paul says, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of ministry. Because nothing you do for God is ever in vain. Always give yourself fully to the work of ministry. If I read that wrong, that sounds like a a recipe for burnout, because what do you picture when you think of giving yourself fully? Right at first thought, it's like, well, that's high energy, high octane, take the hill, charge forward 24-7. But in actuality, that's not a recipe for giving yourself fully. That's a recipe for fatigue and burnout. Rest is a part of giving yourself fully to God, because when I'm tired, I'm not worth as much. Right? Without rest, you'll never be at 100% and giving yourself fully not just to God, but to your work, to your family, to your spouse, to your kids. I think sometimes we get the idea in our heads that we're not supposed to rest until the job is done. That we don't rest until our work is done. But we rest because it will never, our work will never be at its best. And we won't do our best work without it. Right? The world doesn't just need rested workers in the workplace. The world needs rested Christians. Our command to love people, I don't know about you, when I'm tired, 
Raja's been up all night and I got two hours of sleep. I'm not as good at loving people. I got a little less grace, right? The great commission to make disciples and change the world, it starts with go. And when I'm tired, my flesh is saying no, right? It's saying go. That's the, the first word of the great commission. The world needs rested Christians. Like a practical application that's been just big for me as I've become a father and a pastor almost at the same time is create finish lines. Lucky for us, God gives us one in Scripture, a weekly one, called the Sabbath, just finding a time during the week to rest. It might not always be Sunday. It might not always be 24 hours, but taking time to pause, to take a break from a life of perpetual output and unplug and plug back into God and remind ourselves that my worth isn't in my work. I don't have anything to earn before God. It's the beauty of the gospel. We got a weekly finish line in Scripture. I know for me, again, work comes home with me. <laughs> I have to have a daily finish line. Some of us, some of us, we clock out. Some of us, man, you got work calling you all night. There just needs to be a, a finish line to where your spouse gets you, your kids get you, and, and God gets you. Maybe a yearly finish line. Maybe you can't even do a vacation. You can do a staycation. I don't know what. Just take a day off of work. But a yearly finish line, again, where you can not fall into our culture where it's a life of perpetual output, but we can find true rest. Only then will we find the untried wings of rest that it talks about in Isaiah 40, where it says we need to wait in the Lord. We need to pause and remind ourselves that God is in control, and Jesus already died for all my deepest needs, so I don't need to kill myself filling my calendar or kill myself trying to provide. But if I could have the worship team come up, I don't really want to close with practical notes, because maybe you hear most of this and it comes off as pretty practical tonight, but this is deeply spiritual. Because we're all waiting for somebody to look at us and say, that's enough. Right? You're good enough. You don't have to strive anymore. It's okay to stop. All of us deep down, we're restless wanderers just waiting for that. And God reminds us this every time we rest. That's why resting gives us wings like eagles. It reminds us that the weights we carry daily, there's time where we can just lay it on the ground. You don't have to be a restless wanderer. You have a home in Christ, in God, that through the cross we can step into. Right? Like the prodigal son, he, he runs to us when we turn to him. You don't have to be a restless wanderer. That's the good news of the gospel. Again, Ephesians 2 where it talks about we're not saved by constantly striving. I don't earn my grace by grinding daily and trying to do better. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. Resting is, is at the heart of the gospel. And we find it by putting our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus and what we celebrated at communion, the work he did at the cross. And if maybe tonight you would think, man, I've always held back because I've always had this idea that I have to get right, do more before I come to God. Man, I just want to remind you of the good news of the gospel, that, that through Jesus Christ, all the grace and mercy you need is available at the cross, that you can step into relationship tonight. You can know Jesus as Savior tonight. You can know God as Father and friend tonight. The lie that the enemy so often sows into our hearts is that we got to do more before we come. It's a lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> you can come to him tonight. But then for many of us, We've been following Christ year, 10 years, much longer than that. But again, God is always calling us forward. 
Eugene Peterson didn't just write that book. He wrote the book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So often what following Christ is like. Steady obedience. He's always calling us forward, always calling us into new things. And maybe just in this series over these past four weeks, maybe some of the things we talked about, maybe something entirely different where the Holy Spirit has has convicted you, prompted you, and saying this is an area you need to grow. This is an area where you're living with untried wings because you're clinging to something. I don't know what the branch is. I don't know what he's calling you into. We talked about giving, right? Maybe it's letting go of the security and identity we find in our money and resources. That takes trust. Maybe it's fasting for me. Like I told you guys last year, that was active but really random in my life. And I was challenged to pick up those wings, use those wings. Maybe it's reaching, letting go of our comfort zone to share the hope we have. That takes trust. Maybe it's resting, right? Takes trust as well. But each of these pathways have a cost. Each one of them do. But may we remember that as we talked about the first week of this series, there's also an opportunity cost, right? When you live with untried wings, when you live with untapped potential, destinies that you're not walking in, let's not let 2020 be a year of untried wings and clinging to branches. If God has spoken to you about anything, all I've got is these little, their wings. It might be something you hold on to for tonight. <laughs> might be something you hold on to for 24 hours. Might be something you hold on to for a week, a month, a year. I don't know. But I know I've got one in my pocket because, again, I also got one on the floor. God prompted me about fasting and doing it and pressing in. I don't know what it might be for you, but if there's something that God's spoken to you, just come up, grab one of these as we sing and as we worship. You may hold on to it for a day or a year, but I know that the number one strategy of the enemy is to take whatever seed was planted through this series, whatever seed was planted tonight, and through distractions, busyness, uproot that. So if it's something as simple as a little metal wing in your pocket, let's make sure that the seeds God has planted us, the seeds we walk forward in so that he can bring fruit. Jesus Christ, tonight we thank you. If we could stand as we go into worship. Jesus, we pray that tonight you would continue to speak, God. Whatever you've been speaking tonight, whatever you've been speaking this past month, whatever you've been speaking in this season of vision and pressing forward and following you, God, I pray that the enemy wouldn't be able to take it, snatch it, steal it, but that your Holy Spirit would take that deposit so there's fruit we see years from now, looking back on January of 2020. But Jesus, we praise you. We continue the worship we had in communion, and we praise you tonight. And again, if you need prayer for anything, Anthony and Amanda are right here. I'll be right here. But let's worship tonight and praise Jesus for who he is.